0: You will see from your sermon notes, we're talking about anger today. So I'd like to start with a little poll. You can vote silently in your heads, okay? How many of you would say anger is a good thing? That maybe underneath anger is a sign something's wrong. There's an injustice. And since this world is full of injustice, it's hard to imagine someone who doesn't feel anger. Look at MLK. He wouldn't change anything for civil rights in this country without some anger to motivate him. Maybe you even think even Jesus got angry, Amy, turning over tables in John 2 and frustrated with religious folk in Mark 3. In fact, as one writer put it, I am unable to commit to any messiah who doesn't knock over tables. With so much wrong in the world, anger is a holy emotion that can be used to set it right. If that's you, your team anger. How many of you would say, yeah, but anger is also pretty destructive? It can be an instrument of justice, but more often it gets disordered or attacks the wrong target or gets out of control. And in fact, Amy, everywhere anger is listed in the Bible, except when Jesus models it, it's listed within a long life's list of vices and sins we're supposed to rid ourselves of. It's to be avoided, eliminated, feared even. Police officers know that. The calls they fear the most are the ones involving domestic violence. Anger there can quickly become so deadly. If that's you, you're team anti-anger. Rebecca Young asked this question in her book, Glittering Vices on the Seven Deadly Sins of Which Anger is One, Holy Emotion or Hellish Passion. She goes on to describe our own complicated relationship with anger. We don't want to feel it, but we do. While I affirm the reality of righteous anger, and that we can learn a lot about that from Jesus, who modeled it so beautifully. Our passage today is more team caution anger. Because in this passage, Jesus invites us to consider a new way of thinking, a higher standard for preserving life than the religious views at the time. It says a lot about Jesus and about us that he starts here when he begins describing in his greatest sermon ever what it means to be his follower. Those of us who follow him today would do well to heed his words. We're in our third week of studying Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where we are learning just how revolutionary, it's a complete 180, it is to be Jesus' follower. Last week, we saw Jesus locating all moral authority in himself, not the Torah, not the law. He's not out to cancel or correct the Old Testament. He's deepening it. And the first way in which Jesus does this is on the topic of anger. He's going to, as one commentator says, take matters far beyond preserving human life to preserving human relationships. Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew 5, 21 to 26. You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, the judge will hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown in prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. I want to walk us through this passage because there's a lot here. We're going to look, at what we're going to do that first, and then after what we've looked closely at each verse, we're going to look at three challenges Jesus has for us from this passage. Are you with me? So first, the passage. Jesus begins in verse 21 by quoting verbatim the 6th commandment from Exodus 20:13, You have heard it said, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. According to Numbers 25:30, unlawfully taking an innocent life was punishable by death. Human life was so precious, so valued by God, it was not to be taken lightly. So far, the people listening to Jesus, most of whom were likely not convicted murderers, are nodding their heads. We're with you, Jesus. But the next verse is where things get unsettling. Verse 22, but I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus takes the same formula word for word, but replaces murder with anger suddenly there are a lot more accused in the audience now we need to pause here for just a moment to clarify something Jesus is not putting a prohibition on feeling the emotion anger we know this from the language he uses first by his word choice and second by his verb tense in terms of word choice there's two words for anger in greek Thyros, which is what we think of with an angry outburst like a flame on a single dried straw. It quickly blazes up, dies down. And orge, which is longer-lived anger, a slow burn, which is what Jesus uses here. And he uses that word as a present tense participle, or gizomenos. Literally, it means, is being angry is carrying anger, is remaining angry, or nursing a grudge. If Jesus wanted to address a singular moment of anger, he could have used the aorist tense. But his word choice and form means carried or continued anger, more like resentment. So New Testament scholar Dale Brunner translates this verse. But I say to you, whoever is remaining angry, with a brother or sister will have to face judgment. Jesus is not forbidding the emotion of anger to arise in us, but rather the habit of carried anger. Emotions in all their varied forms, sadness, grief, anger, hurt, desire are not wrong in and of themselves. They often come upon us involuntarily. They may even be legitimate in this messed up world. Many situations justify sadness or anger that things are not the way they're supposed to be. The question Jesus is raising here is, is, what will we do when that emotion comes? It arises spontaneously. We don't control that. But we do control whether we will choose to remain angry. Why then does Jesus equate anger with taking a human life? Isn't that a bit extreme? Anticipating this will be as confusing to them as it is to us. Jesus elaborates on the dangers of anger in verse 22. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now while not familiar to us, these terms would have been to Jesus' first hearers. Raka is an Aramaic phrase, the language Jesus and his listeners spoke. It means empty-headed. It's referring to someone's intelligence or lack thereof. We would say, forgive the crassness, parents, stupid, idiot, but the word fool More in Greek has a little bit different connotation. It's more an insult of someone's character. So Bruner's translation again, but I say to you, whoever is remaining angry with a brother or sister will have to face judgment. And whoever says to a brother or sister, you idiot, will have to face the Supreme Court. Whoever says, you jerk, will have to face the fire of hell seething resentment of another, which often leads to dismissive words, attacking their abilities, and then their very personhood, are all worthy of serious judgment according to Jesus. Suddenly it starts to become clear why Jesus is concerned with carried anger. Just think about the vitriol on social media. Think of a recent blog post, or tweet, or angry outburst you overheard. It gets bad quickly. Like a Californian wildfire, where conditions are ripe, a small spark in drought and windy conditions can cause swift devastation. So says James about the sobering power of words. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest fire is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. We may think, it's just words. Sticks and stones, no big deal. Jesus cuts right through that declaring, big deal. Anger carried and then often vented is not just personality weakness. It is grievous sin for which there will be severe judgment. Why? Because people matter to God. Human life matters to God. And anger carried nursed, and kept alive will eventually devalue, wound, and potentially destroy the soul of another. It has to in order to justify carrying it around all the time. Anger if it is carried can't help but become self-righteousness. How else can we justify raging on even silently? unless we continue to see ourselves as mistreated even long after the incident has occurred. It is this kind of sustained anger that breeds contempt, and contempt always destroys relationship. Listen to how Dallas Willard describes content in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, The Divine Conspiracy. The intent and effect of contempt is always to exclude someone, to push them away, leave them out, and isolated. It breaks the social bond between us. Contemptuous actions and attitudes are a knife in the heart that permanently harms and mutilates people's souls. That they are so common does not ease their destruction. This is why it always hurts when someone is angry with us. It's intended to. You have heard it said, don't murder, don't take human life. But I say to you, don't continue in your anger, or you will injure the human soul. I love this word picture one commentator gave of this passage. It's almost as if Jesus' words here put a bubble wrap of protection around each person you meet. Fragile. Handle with care. We are to preserve our relationships. People matter to God. And if people matter and are precious to God, relationships should matter to us. And so, Jesus says, anger is so powerful, so potentially dangerous and deadly. When you are angry, be sure to stuff it down. Be sure to ignore or minimize it or deny that it's there. I'm sure it'll go away. Just pretend it isn't there. No, actually Jesus doesn't say that. He says quite the opposite. We aren't to let him have it or give him a piece of our mind, but we also aren't to shove it under the carpet. For God knows that like a beach ball shoved to the bottom of a pool will eventually burst up through the water so too will anger, and when it does, it will either be misdirected at the wrong person, if not dealt with properly, or directed at the right person, but disproportionate to that particular offense. The emotion you experience may not be about this particular moment, it's about what happened two weeks ago that I've been carrying. So instead of lashing out, fight, or shoving it down and withdrawing, flight, Jesus urges us to make it right. Verse 23 and 24, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Leave, go, and be reconciled then and only then the greek emphasizes come and offer i think it's really easy to miss the astonishing nature of jesus directive here because we're picturing this worship center you know we can kind of slip to the back pretend we're going to the bathroom get a drink of water Uh, it's not very obvious but the picture jesus is describing is the temple of herod in the first century the person in worship has walked past the concentric courts. Court of the Gentiles, court of the women, court of the men is finally at the threshold of the court of the priests where only the priest was permitted. Just as they're about to hand the priest their animal sacrifice necessary because they have committed some sin against God and need to set it right, they recall how they have wronged their neighbor. And Jesus inverts the entire scenario. Instead of going to temple to get right with God, Jesus turns it upside down saying, before you can get right with God, you've got to get right with neighbor. Or as one writer put it quite starkly, the Lord does not want to talk to a disciple who does not want to talk with another person. Jesus' point is that our spirituality is integrated with our relationships. They cannot be separated. So when things are not right with people, stop the religious pretense. Walk all the way past the gawkers and make it right. You know, for a God whose first command was, you shall have no other gods before me, this is astonishing. Now, one brief caveat, though it's way more important than I can spend time on, so hear me. All the verbs in these sentences our active voice, leave, go, come, offer, all except the main verb, the whole purpose, be reconciled. That's in the passive tense, thank you, Jesus, because that's not something we have control over. Whenever there are two people involved, we cannot be responsible for outcomes. We are only responsible for our own behavior. The Apostle Paul picks this up in Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with one another. And friends, the very sad truth is sometimes it is not possible. Sometimes the other person may not be willing to have the conversation or to extend or seek forgiveness. Alternatively, you may extend forgiveness yet choose not to continue the terms of the relationship because it's not safe or healthy. I've spoken a lot elsewhere about how forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation, and we get into trouble when we conflate those two. We are not responsible for others, but we are responsible for ourselves. And Jesus says, do what is in your power to make it right. And do it quickly, verses 25 and 26. Give a different example of someone being dragged to court. This time the conflict is outside the community of faith. No matter. (laughs) We're still to do what we can as soon as possible to make it right. Settle matters quickly with your adversary. Do it while you're still on the way, or else it may get worse. Jesus is so practical here. If love won't motivate us to do this very hard thing, maybe fear will. Whatever is unaddressed or unchecked often snowballs into greater misunderstanding. Letting it sit unresolved doesn't go away, it makes it worse. I think of the phrase in management literature, keep short accounts. The idea behind this is address the misunderstanding, or the confusion, or the problem, or the issue immediately. Because nine times out of 10, it can be easily resolved. If we don't, the tab keeps getting bigger and bigger, and suddenly it's overwhelming, and we get angrier and angrier with each grievance. Instead, settling while it's small reduces misunderstanding and keeps our anger in check. So what does all this mean for us? And I want to tell you, this was a very hard sermon to prepare. If you're feeling conviction, I feel your pain. Every day I worked on this passage was convicting. Three ways I think this text challenges us today. The first is a change in our thinking. The second is a warning. And the third, a behavior or way of acting. So first, the change in our thinking. If we're going to take Jesus' words here seriously, we will value our relationships as a significant aspect of our spirituality. Meaning, we will see all the relationships in our lives as an aid to and influence on our spirituality. This is an important corrective. We, easy, we so easily focus our my, on our minds, or how we're thinking, or our personal behavior when we think about our faith. But that compartmentalizes faith in a way God never intended. This is the person who does a lot of religious activities, attending church, reading their Bible, giving money. But those activities have no bearing on how they relate with the people God has placed in front of them in their daily lives. Robert Mulholland, a New Testament scholar, who wrote a wonderful book on spiritual growth called, it's called Invitation to a Journey. And this is his conclusion, based on looking at the whole of the New Testament. The process of being formed in the image of Christ takes place in the midst of our relationships with others, not apart from them. He adds, if you want a good litmus test of your spiritual growth, Simply examine the nature and quality of your relationships with others. Are you more loving, more compassionate, more patient, more understanding, more caring, more giving, more forgiving than you were a year ago? If you can't answer these kinds of questions in the affirmative, and especially if others cannot answer them in the affirmative about you, then you need to examine carefully the nature of your spiritual life and growth. That's a lot harder to quantify than checking off a behavior, isn't it? But this is what's behind Jesus' elevation from preserving human life to preserving human relationship. It's why Jesus uses that vivid word picture of dropping the animal sacrifice in the holy part of the temple, leaving and being reconciled with our brother or sister, and then returning to worship. As is often the case with Jesus, we're to apply these words individually as well as corporately. And if we're going to take Jesus at his word here, The mark of a healthy church isn't only or even primarily the number of people who show up on Sunday morning or whether we're in the red or black at the end of the fiscal year or even the number of growth groups or ministry partners we currently have. The mark of a healthy church according to Jesus is the quality of our relationships. So how healthy are we? Beyond all the externals, what would Jesus say about our church or about us individually? Friends, this week, instead of seeing your spouse or children or co-workers or neighbors or peers at school as obstacles or impediments to our spirituality, let's see them as instruments for it, vital mirrors for us in learning how we are not yet like Jesus and using that information with God's help to practice becoming more like him. Second, if we're going to take Jesus' words seriously, we will heed his warning about anger and its potentially destructive effects. Jesus makes clear the powerful and harmful effects anger can have when it is not dealt with appropriately. And that destructiveness can happen in very different ways depending on how we handle conflict. It's fairly clear for those, how those who are defensive or angry in their conflict can wound others. They cut people down, chew them out, give them a piece of their mind, lay into them. Yelling, cursing, name-calling are all deadly. You might as well have punched someone. It's hurtful, and we need to watch that. But it's probably less clear how those whose conflict style is more passive or evasive are actually just as harmful and wounding. It just takes longer to see the effects. Now, that's hard to hear, because I think those who are passive or evasive in their style are actually trying not to behave like the aggressive, out-of-control people with anger issues. But when we remain silent or stuffed or deny, or minimize our anger, or smooth it over with something else than actually really addressing the issue, we're still playing with fire. And that spark will eventually ignite. And so, if we want to take Jesus' word seriously, perhaps the most important step we could take today is to start becoming aware of our anger. Awareness is always the first step in making change like a Fitbit tracking our calories, or our number of steps, or our sleep cycle. Tracking the frequency or level or issues prompting anger may be critical feedback for us. So here's a few ideas, try them if you dare. Keep track of your language, spoken, muttered, or thought. You could use an app, make a note on your phone or watch, or go old school. Pull out the marble and the glass jar. Put a marble in every time you say, Raka, idiot, jerk. You might be surprised how quickly the marble jar fills up. You could keep an anger journal for a few days. Keep track of the incidents that provoke anger in you, as well as their intensity level. Then, after a few days and you've cooled off, review it and see what patterns are there and if it still prompts the same kind of anger in you that you've carried. If you're really courageous and humble, you could ask someone close to you where they see anger in your life and how it gets manifested. Is it yelling profanities or short-clipped speech? Is it tone of voice or icy silence? Is it telling the grievance to the offender or to someone else? In whatever way it is manifested in our lives, anger is powerful and we must heed Jesus' warning about its potentially deadly effects on our lives. Which is why the third challenge to us from this passage is a way of behaving. When we are in conflict with someone, we must do all we can to make it right. Relationships matter to God so they should matter to us. And anger is one of the greatest barriers in relationship. It creates a blockage. So Jesus says, deal with it. Make it right. When we have a disagreement with someone, it seems we have two options. We can either work it out with God alone, as in overlook the fault or forgive, or we can work it out with God and the person What we can't do, according to Jesus in Matthew 5, is hold on to it and continue in our anger. Let me explain. There may be cases in which we work it out with God alone. We decide it isn't that big a deal or we understand why the offense may have occurred, we choose to overlook it. Proverbs 19.11, it is one's glory to overlook an offense. But some things are so hurtful, we just can't overlook them. Instead, we choose, with God's help, to forgive the person. Given the positivity and infection rate of hurting our neighbor in this community is 100%, we must continue striving to be people who are marked by forgiveness and grace. Henry Nouwen said, forgiveness is the name of love practiced among people who love poorly. If we're gonna love poorly, Let's at least be recreational in our forgiveness. But some things are so hurtful or repeated or destructive to others that they need to be worked out with God and the other person. It doesn't matter whether they have something against you, as verse 23 says here, or whether, as it says in Matthew 18, you have something against them. The important thing is to talk to the person and seek resolution. Remember, being reconciled does not minimize sin. It's not that we aren't accurate about what has occurred. In fact, there can be no forgiveness without telling the truth. Forgiveness also does not mean we don't hold other people to account or that there aren't consequences for behavior and actions. Think of David and Bathsheba in his sin. God forgave him. There were consequences, that child died. Jesus is serious about stopping wrong behavior. Gouge out your eye if it's causing you to sin, he says in Matthew 18, 9. And verses 15 to 17 of that same passage describe a process by which we persistently point out wrongdoing to a community if it is a pattern. Conflict avoiders would not like having Jesus in their midst. He wants to see it worked out because the community's health matters. And that's the one thing we cannot do, Jesus says in Matthew 5, is choose to hold on to it or choose to carry it. We must let it go. So, dare I ask, is there someone with whom we need to be reconciled? Are we willing to take that step? We may not have to do it alone. Matthew 18 allows and encourages the idea of a Biblical witness to facilitate the process. We may not even be able to work it out. But we must do our part and try at least. Because as far as Jesus was concerned, this was the first and foremost important point to make about life in his kingdom if we're going to be his followers and live as salt and light in this world, slowing the decay and bringing light to dark places, as Rich preached on a couple of weeks ago, this is the first way in which we do it. People matter to God, and so how we treat one another matters, which is why Jesus' warning about anger and the soul-killing words that often accompany it is so important for us to heed So the next time you're feeling angry, in whatever varied form that takes for you, will you choose fight or flight, or will you choose to get right with God and your brother and sister? It just may be the most spiritual thing you do this week. Let's pray. It is no wonder to us, oh Lord, why at the end of your sermon, people sat there aghast. They had never seen someone with such words of wisdom and authority. These words are convicting. And yet we long to be your people, salt and light, in this world, in this community that needs preservation, that needs hope, that needs to see your way of love. We cannot do this. We cannot do this alone. Oh, Holy Spirit, empower us now in your mercy to take one step this week to look more like your son, Jesus, whether it is harnessing our anger or whether it is admitting it is there to begin with. We ask this in Jesus' name and always for his sake. Amen.